And let's welcome Jeff White back up as he preaches on the last two chapters on the book of Ruth. Good morning. Well, the kids are going back to hear some stories. And I think about my time at Lansing Christian when I was a first or second grader. It was always Friday afternoon that Ms. Bush would say, kids, get your carpet squares. And we'd have these little carpet squares and we'd sit in a circle and we'd listen to a story. Today, I, I don't know if today can be considered a whole lot of preaching. Today's going to be more of a story. And if you kind of hear my voice, my voice is going a little bit. In the uh, last, well, I should say Friday morning, I took a basketball team of Ileana athletes up to Calvin College, and we played eight games in 20 hours. It was a tournament. And I was yelling a lot. And so my voice, <coughs> excuse me, is, uh, is a little taxed. So also I just heard you turn that volume up a little bit, didn't you? But in two weeks' time, two weeks ago, you invited me to be here to talk about Ruth. And in two weeks' time, we've had vacation Bible school. Maybe you've read the book of Ruth and looked at those last couple of chapters. But where we were two weeks ago is we looked at chapters 1 and 2. And in chapters 1 and 2, we see this woman, Ruth. And Ruth was from the country of what? Moab. And Moab was an awful place. Satan ruled Moab. Okay, they, they, they would have child sacrifices, incestuous living. It was awful. And then I think to myself, this past spring break, my wife and I, we decided to take our family out to Arches National Park, Canyonlands National Park. And if you know anything about that, it's in the town of Moab. And so, yeah, I have a Moab sweatshirt. And so I'm wearing this shirt the very first day back from, from spring break. And one of my colleagues says, Moab? Do you know what the people of Moab were like? And I thought, yeah, I probably shouldn't be wearing a sweatshirt that says Moab on it. But anyway, Moab. Ruth was from Moab. Naomi, she was not supposed to leave the land of Israel. But she and her husband looked to provide for themselves by going to the land of Moab. While they're in the land of Moab, you probably remember this, both of her sons pass away. And then Elimelech, he passes away as well. So here is Naomi, no sons, two daughters-in-law, no husband, no future. And what does she do? She comes back. She's the prodigal daughter that comes back to the promised land. And what happens when she gets back to the promised land? The people take her back. This story has been told and retold and retold for 3,000 years. The prophet Samuel, he wanted to write this down, and God wants us to know this story. Think about it. Here we are 3,000 years later, and God's saying to us on this beautiful, beautiful June morning, June Sunday morning, I want you to know this story. So what is it in this story that God wants us to know? Yeah, he wants us to know that there are prodigals out there that need to come back. He knows that there are people who live lives of obedience like Ruth and that we need to emulate. But then there's people like Boaz, and we're going to look at Boaz today. And we, we touched on him a little bit two weeks ago. Boaz is a man full of integrity. At a time in, in, the, in the land of Israel, they had gone through peaks and valleys of worshiping God and then falling away. And at this time, they're coming back. 
And Boaz, life is good for him. He's being successful. And he meets, he meets Ruth. And he's impressed with Ruth. He's impressed by the fact that this woman says to him, I am sticking by my mother-in-law. You know why? Because she has come back to this promised land, and I want to have what you have. Moab has nothing for me. I want to be with the true God and the people of God. And what does Boaz say to her? Something that's kind of passed on and through his family. Boaz says, may you seek refuge here. May God give you grace and may he shelter you under his, do you remember from two weeks ago? May he shelter you under his wings. We're going to bring that up again today. So let's take a look here at the book of Ruth. And before we get into Ruth chapters 3 and 4, let's just kind of revisit the last couple verses. Remember back in the 70s or 80s when you watch a TV show, they would say, last time on Marcus Welby. <laughs> some people are laughing and some people are saying, who is Marcus Welby? <clears throat> but last time in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth chapter 2 verse 19, it says this. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is a close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. What does that mean? Well, first off, we have to read this book of Ruth, not through the eyes of a 21st century North American. We have to read this book through the eyes of a Hebrew. Now, many of us, maybe in high school or college, we've taken a sociology class. So today's a little bit of a sociology lesson. And in the people of Israel, God had set up a plan where in every family, in every little clan, there was to be different people who would kind of lead the family. Now, maybe some of you in this room, you think about that. Hey, in my family, it's that particular uncle or it's that particular cousin. There's somebody who, who kind of takes and keeps the family together. When somebody dies or somebody's sick, there's always that one uncle who calls everybody. There's that one aunt who always puts together the family reunion. And here, Boaz is Naomi and Ruth's guardian redeemer. He's the one that looks out for people in the family. Now, there are some translations that use the word kinsman redeemer. Kin. What is kin? Well, I'm a generation Xer. I grew up with reruns of the, of the Beverly Hillbillies. And when you hear the word kin, what is kin? Kin is a relative. So we can use this word guardian redeemers, or we can use this word kinsman redeemer. But yeah, Boaz has standing in the family. He looks out for people in the family. Then Ruth the Moabite. Remember, Samuel's writing this. And time and time again, Samuel mentions she's a Moabite. She's not one of us. She's from a pagan country. He keeps saying that over and over again. He uses that, that adjective, she's a Moabite. He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with these girls, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now in the Hebrew, that word lived, it's not just like she just kind of had a room. 
No, she lived there. She wanted to be a part of it. She was living there with Naomi, trying to establish a new life, her and her aged mother-in-law. As we continue into chapter 3, <clears throat> one day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you'll be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you've been, a kinsman relative of ours? Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. What does that mean, winnowing barley on the threshing floor? The barley harvest has just come in. And the fields are probably a mile to a mile and a half away from town. And near the fields, you have the threshing floor. Because you want to have open, airy space in order to separate the grain from the stalk. So what are the guys doing right here? The guys are pulling an all-nighter. They're going to be working out there in the, in the threshing floor all night long. Now, some of you, you probably remember pulling an all-nighter. Maybe there's a bunch of guys who said, hey, let's drop that engine in, our, in this hot rod tonight. It's going to take all night. We're just going to stay here in the garage, and we're going to drop this thing in there. We're going to pull an all-nighter. Maybe some of you, you've been in college, and you say, hey, guys, we got that big exam tomorrow. Let's pull an all-nighter. Maybe some of you remember the good old days when Hammond, where you could go smelt fishing, and you pulled an all-nighter smelt fishing. Okay? So here the boys are out there on the threshing floor pulling an all-nighter. Because it's not safe to go back. At harvest time, you've got to bring in that harvest. It's not safe in the middle of the night to go another mile, mile and a half back into Bethlehem or back into whatever village you're near. During the middle of the night, they didn't have, you know, nice little LED headlamps to see where they were going. If you stub a toe and that toe breaks, it goes septic. Life was very fragile then. You didn't take risks. Maybe going home in the middle of the night, you might run into a rabid dog. You don't want to do these things. So you're going to stay out there all night long at the threshing floor. As we continue. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. Wait a minute. It's not safe for the men really to go back into town in the middle of the night, but yet Naomi's saying, Ruth, go out there in the middle of the night. Now, there's a lot of interesting euphemisms about the word uncover his feet or the phrase uncover his feet. And after church, if you want to know what some of those euphemisms are, I'll, I'll kind of fill you in. But right now, that's not really important to the story that we're looking at today. What does Ruth do? Ruth is going to go there all glammed up. I asked my wife, I said, should I use the word gussied up or dialed up? And my wife says, what, do you live in the 40s? She says, no, it's glammed up. So here, Ruth is getting all glammed up to kind of meet Boaz and say, hey, you're our redeemer. You kind of have to marry me. Marry you? What are you talking about? Next slide, please. In the Old Testament, God had set up a way in which the family of God would take care of each other. And there was something known as the liberate marriage ritual. And in this ancient law, it required that if you were the surviving brother of a brother who had passed away, it was your responsibility 
to marry his widow and to keep that family lineage continued. Well, here, sorry, Ruth, you don't know the law as well as you think you do. And Naomi, she's been away for a while. Naomi doesn't quite know the law as well as she thinks she does. And you know what? Sometimes scripture's a little scant on how this really played itself out. But there in the middle of the night, when Ruth comes to Boaz and says, you're supposed to marry me, Boaz is like, well, no, I'm not. First off, I am a kinsman redeemer, but I'm not really not your, your husband's brother. I really don't have to do this. In fact, I'm a businessman. I know the law. So let me fill you in on how the law works. Let's actually fill ourselves in. Now, many of us maybe have never, ever read Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25 explains what this law is like. So now let's kind of take a little step into ancient sociology for a moment. If your brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, that kind of makes sense. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill his duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. And if he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what has done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. What? Yeah, I'm going to give you an amen. So confusing. Pull off a sandal spit in his face and say, you are not living up to what you're supposed to do? Well, let's rewind. Ruth doesn't call the elders together. She doesn't spit in his face. She's a Moabite, so Boaz really doesn't have to marry her. And she's not really even Boaz's brother-in-law. He really doesn't have to marry her. But Boaz says, I am a kinsman redeemer. And I'm going to work out a deal for you, Ruth. I'm going to work out a deal for you and for Naomi. Let's continue. Although it is true that I'm near of kin or a guardian redeemer of the family, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as sure as the Lord lives, I'll do it. So just lie here till morning. So what does he tell Ruth? He tells Ruth, I'm going to cut a deal. I'm going to put a contract together. I'm going to summon the elders, and I will speak on behalf of you and your mother-in-law, Naomi. We're going to get this done. We will settle this matter. Don't worry. I got it handled. As we continue. What is it that Boaz is? Boaz is a gael. In Hebraic culture, a Gael is an avenger. Think about that. It's, it's Boaz's job to be an avenger of life circumstances. And for Naomi, you're in my family. I will avenge whatever is wrong for you. And what's wrong for Naomi? 
She's got no money. Okay? She is going to be a slave somehow. Slave to her own poverty. Slave to circumstances. So, and, and, and if she was a younger woman, she could even have to actually go and become a bond servant to someone else to pay off her debts. So Boaz says, I'm going to be an avenger for you. I'm going to take care of this. We're going to somehow take the land that has been entrusted to you. I'm going to figure out a land deal. And I'm going to take the money and make sure you have a little nest egg, Naomi, so that you can survive. So you will not be disgraced. I will avenge the situation. So it's a legal contractual situation is what Boaz is doing here. Let's continue. As we go into chapter 4, Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian or the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to you and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these elders seated here and in the presence of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has right to it, so for no one has the right to do it except you. And then I'm the next in line. And what does this man say? This man says, I'll redeem it. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. Then Boaz throws in the little extra part of the contract. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not part of the deal. The part of the deal was for me to buy the land so Naomi can survive. And now, Boaz, you being the Gael over there, you being the redeemer, you're throwing this part into the contract? I, I don't think so. At this, the guardian redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. See, what you're trying to do here, Boaz, is you're trying to get me to take my assets, which should go down to my children, and then somehow buy Naomi's assets, take in this woman, Ruth, so that those assets never ever become mine or my children. Boaz is crafty. You bet he's crafty. The guy says, I'm out. You redeem it. I can't do it. And what does Boaz do? Boaz does the, does the following. So the kinsman regarding redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. It's called a hazelah. A special transfer of property is being taken place right here. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have brought, that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite. Malon's widow was my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you're witnesses. Let's go back to this little sociology lesson. What's happening here? From now on, Naomi will never be in disgrace. See, if Naomi actually had that land purchased and then given her that money, every time they take a census, 
Every time they do a roll call, it's going to say, Naomi, the one who went bankrupt. Naomi, the one who had to sell her God-given inheritance. This is a disgrace. But for Boaz, I'm going to make sure that it's no longer a disgrace for you, Naomi. That land is always going to stay in that custody of your family name. You will not be embarrassed. Wow, Boaz. Not only are you taking Ruth to be your bride, you're taking care of a mother-in-law. You're taking care of a Moabite woman. You're taking care of everybody, Boaz. You don't have to do this, but you're doing it. Once again, realize this. He doesn't have to do this. That's what makes Boaz such a, such a unique character in Scripture. That's why we're looking at him 3,000 years later. That's why Samuel wrote about Boaz, because Boaz doesn't have to do a thing, but he does. So what is this whole thing about the sandal? What is it about the sandal? Well, let's talk about what it's not. We could do a whole entire sermon on feet and sandals. There's some stories in scripture you might remember where you took off your shoe because you were in a special sacred place. I think a lot of us remember the story of Moses. Moses comes up to the burning bush and God says, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. So in some parts of scripture, you take off your shoes because it's a holy area. Sometimes if you were in mourning, you put on sackcloth. Or maybe you covered your head in ashes. I know it seems strange for a 21st century North American, but in that culture that was normal, and you took off your shoes because you were in mourning. Or maybe you just had enough of a person, and you say, I'm shaking the dust of my sandals off, and you and I are done. Or maybe you remember Luke 3, verse 16, where John the Baptist says about Jesus, his sandals I'm unfit to tie. So there's a lot of imagery throughout Scripture about shoes and about sandals. So what is it in this particular story? In this particular story, think about today in our 21st century America. We get done with a business deal, we what? We shake hands, or maybe we propose a toast. Back then, when the business deal was done, you took off your shoe. Everybody saw you take off your shoe. It was your divestment of the claim of that particular property. In other words, this kinsman redeemer that Boaz approaches, he says, are you out? The guy says, I'm out. I'm taking off my shoe, which means I have no right ever to set foot on Naomi's property. Next slide, please. So I've got no right. No right to this property, no right to walk on it, no right to use it. It's yours now, Boaz. Let's go back to that threshing floor. What did Boaz tell her in that threshing floor? He said, I'm going to work out a deal. And what does Ruth say to him on that threshing floor? She says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. She takes that little line that he has used on her about may you find refuge under God's wings. And she says, I really want to find refuge under your wings. This is a picture here of a tallit. It is a special prayer shawl 
that Jewish men will oftentimes use maybe in worship or in a special occasion. And when you are grabbing the ends and the tassels of that particular shawl, it's called the protection under the wings. I was at a tournament, as I said earlier in the message today. And yesterday, things weren't going so well for my team. And I called the timeout and I said, guys, from now on, every time a shot goes up, I don't care what happens, five guys go and crash the boards, get the rebound. Five guys in, five guys. And they started doing it. And they started having success. And then all afternoon, when we didn't do that particular strategy, things went, went south on us. And what do you think all my players were yelling out to their friends all game? Five in, five in, means every time you go in for the rebound. They were taking my little one-liner, and they were repeating it. What does Ruth do that night that she's in the threshing floor with Boaz? She, she actually throws that line back at him. You told me, Boaz, may God protect me under his wings. This is God's sovereign plan for you to protect me under your wings. Wow. This is a gutsy lady. Israel is going to have struggles throughout its history. I think many of you know that. They're going to go through times in which the kings are going to fall away from God. God will have to discipline his people. And there's going to be a time in which the prophet Ezekiel, he sees utter devastation of the people. He, the people have been carted off to Babylon. Things couldn't be any worse. And here's what it says in Ezekiel. God says, Ezekiel, my prophet, say this to the people. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. When Ezekiel gives this particular prophecy, it had been 500 years since the story of Ruth. The people of Israel knew the story of Ruth. And what does God say? He uses that line again. I will protect you under my wings. I will spread the corners of my garments and I will take care of you. As we go back to the passage, this transfer of property doesn't become legal just because somebody takes off a shoe. No. Next slide. It becomes legal Next slide, please. It becomes legal because somebody wrote down what took place. While that whole contract is being worked out, somebody is writing down everything that Boaz is saying, everything that everybody else is saying, what the witnesses are saying, and then you know what's going to happen? It'll be rolled up and it'll be sealed off, and that contract is now done. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain his name with the dead, with the property, so that his name will not disappear from the family or from the town records. Today, your witnesses. Next slide, please. So in this particular situation, the shoe was taken off, but more importantly, the scroll was sealed, and the scroll was fixed. And the only person that could ever, ever open up that scroll 
are not the witnesses, not the elders. The only person that could ever open up this scroll would be the Gael, the avenger. Boaz, if he wants, he can break the seal and remind himself of what's in the contract. But that stays sealed. Now, what's the big deal about this? As we said a few moments ago, there's going to be times in Israel's history when they're going to fall away. <coughs> they're going to fall away. And one of those times, the prophet Jeremiah was trying to tell the people, turn from your wicked ways. And when people of Israel are being taken off as captive and the economy is awful, God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go buy some land. Buy land? The economy is really bad. Now, many of you in this room have not possibly made investments over the years. And there's times where you make investments when the times are good. I don't know if I'm going to make this investment right now. Uh, we're looking at inflationary times. I don't know if we can do this. God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go buy land. But Lord, this might not be worth anything in a, in a little while. Buy the land. Because people are going to say, why is God's prophet buying land? Here's why God's prophet is buying land. Because God will bring the people back someday. So he tells Jeremiah, I signed and sealed the deed that I had witnessed and weighed out with silver scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. That's right. Jeremiah, when he purchases that land as a symbol of God bringing his people back, that scroll is sealed. I hope that we can see today the depth that we see right here in this book of Ruth. Ruth is not just a love story. Ruth is like an onion that you keep peeling back. And every time you peel it back, Ezekiel points to Ruth. Jeremiah points to Ruth. And what's more important is the book of Revelation points to Ruth. We think that times were bad for Christians, maybe now, maybe a thousand years ago, maybe in past history. Look at the first century church. The Romans were brutal to God's people. In fact, here is John on the island of Patmos, and he's incredibly discouraged. He's been, he's, he's on prison. He can't spread the word. God, what, what's going to happen to all your remnant? What's going to happen to your people? And God gives John the visions that we read about in the book of Revelation. And Revelation chapter 1, it's not very good. Revelation chapter 2 is even more depressing. Revelation chapter 3 is even more depressing. Revelation chapter 4 is incredibly depressing. Then we get to 5. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne and the scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And then God says, John, look. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. Nobody was that Gale. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion 
the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. For mankind, there's only one person who can open that scroll as the avenger. And it's the root of David. It's the root of David. It's going to be the offspring of Boaz and Ruth. So how do we wrap this up? When the elders were present there, and they saw what, what Boaz had done for Naomi, and what Boaz had done for Ruth, those witnesses said, we've never seen anything like this. All the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who was coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Though the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. I teach history. And we look back in history. Abraham Lincoln, when he was at Gettysburg, and he was giving that Gettysburg address, he said, no one's going to forget whatever happened here. It's too important. George Washington, when he crossed the Delaware and defeated the Hessians on Christmas, the day after Christmas, Washington said, what happens here, no one in America will ever forget. 3,000 years ago, those people bearing witness to what Boaz did when he didn't have to, they said, what we see here today, may we never forget this. Something special took place today. And that's right. Because Samuel wrote about it, and God's bringing it to us today. 3,000 years later, what happened there was big. What happened there points to Revelation, points to Jeremiah, points to Ezekiel. And, if you, and, I, and I encourage you to do this. If you keep reading the book of Ruth over and over and over, you'll keep pulling back one onion peel after another because there is so much depth in this book. And what do we see in this book? We see Boaz, the Christ figure, the bridegroom, who says, I don't have to take Ruth to be my bride, but I'm going to. Christ says to us, I don't have to take you, but I will take you. I will be your Gael. I will open the scroll. And what does Jesus say when he opens up the scroll? Father, I have met all the terms and conditions for those people there, for Hope Church, I have met everything. I have been their kinsman redeemer. Ruth, the Ruth story is an us story. Ruth is moved by God to faith and obedience, and this bloodline will continue, and it will bring forth the Messiah. The, Bo the Boaz story is our story. The Ruth story is our story. It's the us story. Boaz, with his gentle, loving interaction with Ruth, he never once required her to account for her pagan, child-sacrificing, incestuous lifestyle that she grew up in. He simply redeemed her in front of witnesses and brought her into his family. Our Lord, with his abounding love and obedience to the Father, never once requires us to still live in the bondage of our past baggage. He never requires us to live in the bondage of our past sins, no matter how grievous the terms were to buy us back. 
prior to Jesus Christ, there was not one person who has ever walked this planet who was akin to God. And Jesus is kin to God, and he's kin to us. And what does he do? He opens up the scroll, and he says, it's finished. It's done. And I'm binding it back up again. Because Jesus is the only one who can bind it, and loose it, and redeem. And that's the beauty of the story. What's the title of today's passage? Go ahead and marry Ruth. She's worth it. What does our bridegroom say to us? You people in Hope Church, you're worth it. I don't have to buy you back. I don't have to be your bridegroom, but I'm going to do it, and you're my bride, because you're worth it. And may all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We read this ancient story today, this ancient story that has so many layers, so many complicated cultural uh, elements to it, and we ask, Lord, that we might have had our eyes open to see all the uniqueness of this story, the story that your servant Samuel wrote down and that we read 3,000 years later, that you are not only the great high priest, you are the great Gael, the great avenger. The one, who, the one who handles handles this contract before Almighty God and the one who says, I will take back and redeem every single one of these people because they're worth it. In your precious name we pray. Amen.